Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that's willing to go where other Buddhist podcasts fear to tread. Coming to you from Trieste, Italy and Bath, England, each episode we discuss topical issues concerning Western Buddhism with a bit of banter and occasional guests. You can join in the fun at our dedicated Facebook page and Twitter feed. Download episodes from SoundCloud and MixCloud. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Today's episode features an interview, our first interview, with Tenzin Pellior. He's a German, and you're going to hear some nice, a nice German accent today. And I'm going to mention, actually, at the get-go, a couple of uh, facets that say of the German-English accent uh, for those listeners who might not be used to it. Be aware that the Germans have a bit of a difficulty with the W sound in English, like, you know, wonderful. What's that, Matthew? Like, w- wonderful. Thank you, Stuart. So what you're going to hear from Tenzin is often he says, wonderful, okay, or something like this. Some of the vowel sounds um, in a German accent are also very, very tight. So, for example, he says the word vow, uh, vowels, as in, you know, a monk's vowels, and it, it comes out as a vowels. So you'll need to look out for that. It's quite a tight language, isn't it? In, in, in very pre- I think precision is the word I'd use. Yeah, I, that's probably a bit of a stereotype. I don't speak German, so I don't know. But, um, I mean, the Germans that I've met who've, who've got good English, and Tenzin, by the way, does have very good English, often that, that word sound is particularly difficult. Just like in, in Italy, they often have difficulty with the English vowel sounds, and they find it terrible to say things like th, you know? They can't say Matthew. For example, in Trieste, they say mechu with a ch. Just be aware of that, folks. And apart from that, Tenzin speaks really well. We've edited it as well as possible as well to cut out some of the phrases that are a bit ambiguous. Stuart, how did you find the interview? What did you make of it as, a, as an audience member? It was good. It was good. Um, as you say, Tenzin has some very, has very good English. I've myself have, you know, had to work with Germans and uh, like them a great deal. You know, like all people, they're good, they're bad. Tenzin definitely has a, a good grasp of the English vernacular and that's a solid thing. The interview itself, content-wise, I thought it was good. It was a different dynamic. It was different to have you guys, you know, you were obviously leaning at Matthew with the with the interview content, but Tenzin clearly had a lot to bring to the table and and that in itself speaks for itself, I believe. So you're going to hear some of Tenzin's story. He talks a little bit about his involvement with one of the Buddhist groups we mentioned last episode. He talks about not only his experience, but also how he started putting together his own websites and what it was that inspired him to do so. Uh, We also talked a little bit about some of the literature that might be useful for people who are interested in informing themselves a little bit better about the Tibetan context, which I think we mentioned last episode is one of the problems with a group like the NKT. They're really insular and highly sectarian, so the followers generally don't read any other Buddhist books. But perhaps even worse than that, because, I mean, that could be work with in a sense, they they don't tend to have any knowledge about the history of Tibet or the history of the Gelug school, which is where the Kadampa idea comes from. And they don't really have an understanding of the context of this Dorje Shugden character, which is, you know, the, the controversial figure that uh, has, has led to them being featured in various news articles, often describing them as cults, as a cult, I should say. Without wanting to beat a dead horse, but the, uh, the Reggie Ray books, to put it in context and put it into context quite simply without having to dig into all of the various you know, History of Tibet by Sam Van Shaik and all of all of that, various different stuff. That in itself has quite a good political background just on the various 
four, in there they say five, without including the bumper, because there was one that the Gaelics bombed out of existence. Um, yeah. You know, it goes into a good historical context that puts it all into a nice political format without going into just the practice aspects. So that that's pretty cool. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've read those books. I think it's a little bit light. I actually think um, Western Buddhists would do well to read texts that are very much dedicated to explicating the history and the politics and getting rid of the romanticism and all of those sort of fantasies that still linger on amongst many, well, the, the, you know, let's say it, rather naive Western Buddhists. So, um, yeah, okay, that's a fair point. I mean, we do actually mention Sam Van Schaik's book. Uh, certainly is one worth reading. The other one we re- uh, recommend is uh, Prisoners of Shangri-La by uh, Donald S. Lopez Jr., which is fantastic, especially because Donald's got a, a really nice approach to writing even though they're academics, they're academic texts. They're academic texts aimed at a general audience. And Donald uh, has got an interesting sense of humor and a way of communicating some of his discoveries that I think are really effective at dismantling some of the sort of romanticism and those, those strange ideas Westerners have sort of developed about Tibet as that sort of perfect land. And uh, Tenzin's well it's aware not, of that. Uh, it's, it's, it's not pure land. It's not Shangri-La. Uh, no, of course it's not. not. It's not Shambhala hidden in a ring of mountains somewhere. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, what's nice is that Tenzin is a Buddhist monk. You know, he's taken the vows, he wears the robes. And we talk a little bit about actually the sort of what could be conflict between the role of a monk and the role of a German Westerner, which and you'll see what he says and whether you you think that that's believable or not. Tenzin is a guy who's, you know, striving to basically understand Buddhism, not just from his tradition, but from engagement with the academic fields, too. And that comes through in much of his work at his website. So we've got our interview now, guys. Short, sharp, and uh, concise, right? Yeah, short, sharp, and concise. Enjoy the interview with Tenzin. If uh, you have questions about what we've done, if you have further comments, don't forget we've got a dedicated Facebook page. We welcome the them. likes. Yeah, the likes are slowly going up there, but um, feel free to you know get stuck in. So enjoy the interview with Tenzin Pelior. And we'll see you next time on the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Bye for now. Thanks for now. Okay, everybody, welcome. Today we have a special guest with us. This is an interesting man who has two identities. He's a German and he's a European, and he's also a Buddhist monk. His uh, Dharma name is Tenzin Pelior, and his uh, birth name would be Michael in English. Uh, can you tell me how to say your name correctly, please? It's Michael Jekyll. Yeah, you can hear, audience, that's a little bit tricky. And we already have a history on the podcast of mispronouncing names, so we've avoided that today. Okay, Tenzin, so you occupy two worlds in a way. You're a German and a European, but you're also a Buddhist monk. How do you manage to balance those two identities? I'm a German, a European, or I grew up in, I would say, Western countries with a certain type of culture. When I was 29, years before 
it culminated to a point where I felt I need something else in my life which enables me for some inner changes. And this was the start where I tried different types of religion, finally met Buddhism, and then there were methods within Buddhism that helped me a lot to understand my own behavior, ways of thinking, and empowered me to change myself. So Buddhism was a first a method to enrich my life, to change my life, to change myself. And in a way, my background and Buddhism melted that I don't see any contradiction in those two types of identities. I don't know if you can understand this. Yeah, that makes sense. If I think about Buddhism and if I think about the role of a monk and nun, at least as much as I know, uh, some aspects of it perhaps seem incompatible with the Western lifestyle. If we talk about issues like uh, sexuality or involvement in politics and so forth, uh, do you see any conflict in those two areas? No, not at all. You know, the... The methods of Buddhism, and especially the teachings about the free mind poisons, they helped me to understand myself. And one of the points was a strong sexual desire, for instance. No? And I wanted to work with it. I, I, you know, I lived out my sexuality. I knew, the, I know the taste, I knew the taste. Also, I knew its limitations, the addictiveness, and also how it leads you astray. And I was interested to let go this extremely strong desire. And the lifestyle of a monk and the rules of a monk give me a frame to restrain myself, to have boundaries and limits in which I can work with my mind. Again, there is no contradiction. It's supportive. Okay, so you, you've made it work for you, though, in a sense. Yes. How much do you think Western Buddhist monks and nuns end up sort of repressing certain aspects of themselves in order to fit perhaps an ideal of the monk. Because uh, if I explain myself better, sometimes when, if I look at a monk and a nun, it seems to be an ideal sometimes. It's an image that perhaps some people fall in love with or aspire to. And then perhaps sometimes the reality of becoming a monk or nun and then renouncing all of these things in your life, which you, again, you live in the West, you see around you again and again and again. Perhaps that could actually lead not to some sort of uh, discipline, in, as you were describing, but perhaps some form of repression. Do you, do you think that might be the case? I cannot say what is with other monks and nuns in a way, you know. Um, I have to check myself. Of course, I know other monks and nuns, and um, I, some of them are happy, some are not so happy, some struggle. But let's speak about myself, not about others in that context, because it would be easily go in the direction of speculate about others. Of course, there is a danger, but not so much with, much with monks and nuns' life, but rather with spirituality, to use Buddhism, to use a lifestyle of a monk or nun to cling to identities, to improve for yourself, to adore yourself with uh, something like a status, although monks and nuns usually in the West don't have much higher of a reputation or status. Usually, no, it's not, uh, I didn't experience it that way. Some people feel like you are a loser if you do it, which is quite nice because <laughs> you have a new check. You have, a, you have to, you need, you need a stable motivation no, if it is not really appreciated. But the, the key is um, for me, if you use the methods and you work on yourself, the result will be freedom 
it will be a more inner peace and from this comes a lot of happiness. So it depends how you use your lifestyle. If you use your lifestyle and the teachings to really work on yourself, the result will be you are happier, you are relaxed, more relaxed and you find more inner peace. And then this being a monk or nun is something which is desirable for you. And then if you work on yourself, of course, you need to be aware of what's going on in yourself. You need this type of mindfulness or watchfulness. Uh, then you don't betray yourself. But of course, spirituality, and I know a lot of people, they, it is called, by the way, uh, spiritual bypassing, who use spirituality to work with yourself emotions to delude yourself about yourself to create um, a, a, what to say a higher or better self which is just fiction where you don't change and you go into this mode of adoring yourself spirituality is an escape to really work on yourself do you know what i mean so it sounds to me like you're talking about um, people splitting from themselves they create an ideal image of themselves which they try and enact almost and in doing so perhaps they're inauthentic or dishonest yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That for instance, if you, have, yeah, if you have a weak self, then you, you are always looking for something to make it better. And then you are to be a monk or nun is something, and then you might cling to that idea and then um, might temporarily uh, loosen the pain from a weak self um, by building up a stronger or more idealized self. But in the long run, it won't work. And then you can use the Buddhist teachings. You hear about compassion and you think, oh, yes, compassion, like I, I have compassion. You have it sometimes, but you don't really work on yourself. And then you cling to the idea you have compassion although you don't see where you don't have it and where compassion is limited and all those things the dharma is a mirror you reflect yourself and you see your own limitations and actually to do this you need something like self-esteem courage and actually a strong self and not a weak self and here comes a real problem with spirituality in the west because most come from a weak self and my own teacher Rinpoche he says if you want to practice Buddhism, you need a healthy samsaric ego. You need a strong self. You need it. a strong self is someone, what you say, uh, kicks you and you just kick back and say, are you crazy? You know, this is a strong self. You are able to defend yourself and then you can work because you have a strong self, you have self-confidence, you can really challenge yourself and you cannot challenge yourself if you have a weak self. That's great. Yeah. This is probably a good point for us to to talk a little bit about some of the cults that were discussed in the last episode, because uh, from what you've just described, what you're implying possibly is that some of the people that end up in the more cult-like Buddhist groups likely have a weak self or are not able to stand up and think for themselves and challenge, let's say, some of the dysfunctional behavior that goes on in these groups. I would not go so far to say people who follow a cult have a weak self. I would go so far to say we have a tendency in the West that our culture, which is much based on fault finding and comparing yourself with those people who are better than yourself, naturally leads to a lack of self-confidence and a tendency to put down yourself, which is some, sometimes also called, uh, what do you say, there's a certain type of pride where you put down yourself. No, This is something which is quite pervading within Western culture. But of course, one cannot generalize too much. Almost all Buddhists might enter any group with rather a weak self. There are some exceptions, but I think for the majority, this might be true. So then people who, who ever follow a Buddhist group might start with a weak self. You, before you wanted to bring the, the, the sort of discussion back to yourself, so let's talk about you. you. You spent quite a lot of time in one of the Buddhist groups we discussed last uh, episode, which was the New Kadampa tradition, the NKT. 
Wait, would you say that when you entered that group, you had a weak self or did you somehow lose your way during that time? No, I wouldn't say I had a weak self, but I would say I had something like a strong narcissism. Um, I had a strong self. I was in the East German army. It was quite tough this time. And I was quite clear. I didn't follow all this. When I entered the room the first time, I asked, who is uh, the elderly person here? And someone said, here, yeah, I. And this is the person I should serve. Now I said, I tell you one thing. You clean the room yourself. You bring your own coffee. I won't be your servant in any way. No. And I really went through it. And I wrote one complaint after the other <laughs> about any type of injustice. So. And, and also my first teaching I got from my NKT teacher, um, she came out of the room and asked me how it was. I was sitting on the table. I didn't pay her any respect. No, I'm from a leftist background where you challenge any authority. <laughs> so in that sense, I was quite strong. And then the funny point was, I was aware something is going wrong with this group, the New Kadamba tradition and the teacher and how the way how they explained it. And also my friend said that here is something wrong. And a friend of mine organized a meeting with the officer, the Berlin officer in charge for cults. And uh, we asked them if there is any information about this group. They said, no, there's nothing. But we have here something like nine signs where you should be careful if there's even one sign. They listed nine and eight of nine, <laughs> eight of nine were true. And do you know what I did? I went back to the NKT center to this teacher and said, you know, this is a Buddhist cult. No, this is a cult. And nine out of ten signs and you fulfill eight out of nine. So this is a cult. And she was so skillful. She said, a cult? Buddhism is a world religion. And then why do you believe mundane people with no spirituality? You want to become a monk, but you believe people who are worldly, who have no understanding about spirituality? Why do you believe some Christian priest who is jealous about the success of Buddhism? I was thinking, actually, it was, not a Buddha, it was not a Christian priest. And what she did, she undermined my intuition. Hmm. She undermined skillfully my self-esteem. And this, in this, the enkati is really good. To undermine your self-confidence, to undermine your own reliance in your intuition. And at one point, you cannot really rely your own perception. And all the Buddhists these teachings are used to fuel this undermining of self-esteem and undermining of relying in your own intuition. And it did it so well that I didn't even realize it. And then I started to brainwash myself. So what do you mean by brainwash yourself? This was the way how she responded to this, um, what to say, to my confrontation. And then in the evening, there was a teaching. And then she said, you know, the Buddha says, our perception is not reliable. It's not only wrong. It's totally wrong, <laughs> something like this. And then she gave some examples. And of course, those examples make sense because of, and of course, our perception is not reliable. And of course, many times we project onto things. And then she said, the faults we are seeing in the other persons are actually our own faults. The faults we see in our Buddhist teacher 
are the protection of our own negative mind. And there is some truth in it. And here it comes in, cults work in the realm of, of fussiness. Something is true, something is not precise and correct. And then if you don't have a super knowledge and something like precise knowledge, you don't get it how you are manipulated. So at one point, I didn't have any reliance in that teacher to give you an explanation how I brainwashed myself. And I was thinking, this, this woman is dishonest. I really had no faith at all in her. And, but she insisted it's all my fault. And that at one day, Kelsan Kiatsu wrote a long life prayer for her, which was something like, um, may all your activities of body, speech and mind be fulfilled without delay or with full success. And actually, I found this person so strange. I really, from heart, I would never think all her deeds should be fulfilled because I was thinking there were some deeds which are good, no? Then, you know, Kelsan Kiatsu is the Buddha. He's the Buddha. He knows. And then I was thinking, I'm the deluded person. I'm the person who does not know. He's the Buddha who knows. He knows the past, present, and future. So he wrote the long life prayer. He has faith in her. How can I not have faith in her? There's something wrong with me. So, and then I start to manipulate myself to not see the faults in her and to project qualities. This was further empowered by a wrong explanation by Kelsan Kiatsu about faith, which he defines as not seeing the faults in the objects of faith, which by the way is a completely twisted definition of faith, which is not concordant to the scriptures. I was thinking, if I see faults, it's my fault, it's my problem, and I have to repress it. I was thinking, oh, she is really also a Buddha, in a way. Okay. <laughs> I projected qualities on her. I um, suppressed any perception of faults. And at one point, I had a type of a faith which was not based on reality, but fictions. Yeah. And then I started to create a virtual world which functions and collapses in real life. Yeah, and that makes sense. Thinking about some of the criticisms we made about the NKT in our episode, we, we had a similar experience to you in that when I took the orange list, which is one of the more famous lists of the qualities of cultish groups, and I went through it very quickly and quite superficially in thinking about the NKT, I found out of 100, at least 52 or 54 applied to the NKT. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot. And I mean, probably if I went through it and thought a little bit more, we could add more. So that's interesting. And of course, I think it was number three, number three or number two, but number two is uh, the guru is always right. And number three is you are always wrong. Yes. Which is, and that sounds like the process that you were going through, accepting yeah. that. Exactly yeah. this. Yeah. And it's interesting that um, in noting, in reading through some of your work on your two websites, uh, there's a word that you use again and again, and you talk about honesty and being true to yourself. Yes. And it's, it's, it's quite transparent, I think, that that is the solution to the sort of brainwashing that you started to, to take on, in a sense. And as you said, you did it to yourself. So if you do it to yourself, you're guilty and you're probably ashamed of that. And it, may, it undermines even further your own confidence and your ability to stand up and speak against these influences, right? Honesty? Yeah, you talk about honesty and you talk about being true to yourself and accepting yourself. And you talked about the fact that um, what your teacher now, who's Ringo, uh, Toku Ringo Rinpoche, you talked about your experience with him is that he accepts you as you are. Yes. He doesn't expect you to be somebody else. Yes. And what you were describing uh, before and what a lot of testimonies are from NKT followers, ex-NKT followers, sorry, is that they were forced to be something they're not or live up to a, a standard or an ideal yeah. of yeah. a person that, as you yeah. said, is almost a figment of the imagination. It's not something real. Yes. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How many years were you involved with the NKT? And at what point did you 
let's say, refined yourself or refined your voice? I was in the NKT for four years. And then I followed for two and a half years some Shukun Lamas, which are, who are quite known, like uh, Gangshan Lama, um, Na Lama, Lup Sang Yeshi, who is a self-proclaimed Rinpoche, and he's not a true Rinpoche. And then I followed this NKT teacher who was expelled from NKT, but was acknowledged by uh, Shukun Lamas, Lama Gangshan, the fake Kundaling, and then the Chicho Rinpoche, who tried to acknowledge her to be a Tulku. It's another story. Now, you know, we stopped before I created a fictional world. No? That's right, yeah. And this worked so nice. <laughs> you have so nice feelings following this fictional world. Everything is good. There is the guru who is omniscient. He will save you. You know, this gives you a lot of good feelings. And I heard a criticism about religion. And uh, I think it was from a philosopher. He said, religion, religion is all about creating good feelings. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> Quite funny, and the NKT is so good in it. So, and I even had dreams, you know, with Kelsankat. So I was walking with him. He was so calm. He was the Buddha. He explained karma in the dreams to me. It was all so nice. You cannot imagine. I was so happy <laughs> <laughs> until real life came. <laughs> real life unfolded, and it happened that way. That our NKT teacher, De Chen, at that time, she was the NKT's Germany representative. And she was only two years educated within NKT and became already the representative of the NKT in another country, which tells something about their, what to say, lack of uh, education. She had an inclination towards Tibet and also Tibetan lamas. And so she also visited Tibet and so she met some other lamas and was also fond of them, not, not only to Kelsang Gyatso. And actually, this is completely unwelcomed in the NKT. You shouldn't have any contact except Kelsang Gyatso as your guru. Then those three lamas, they seem, it appears, um, I cannot tell his name because he doesn't want to tell his name. A scholar and a Buddhist practitioner, Westerner, who is quite known, said to me, he interprets what happened as a bad game against Kelsang Kyatso. Those three lamas, Lama Ganshan, the fake Kundaling and Jitsu Rinpoche, wanted to recognize this teacher as a tulko. And this means, actually, from a Tibetan perspective, she is higher than Kelsang Gyatso <laughs> because he's only a geisha. And so it was my um, task to inform Kelsang Gyatso via email about the happy occasion that our teacher is now recognized as a tulku from those great Shukden Lamas. Oh, dear. And he, he was going to be happy about that, of course. And I wrote an email with my, what to say, uh, my, what to say, red rose thinking, ah, at this auspicious occasion and whatsoever. And Kelsan Katsu was, I read all those emails, no? I sent them and I, uh, I got his reply. And he was, oh, very good, but um, I think some people might respond with je jealousy and maybe it's better we talk with each other how to fix this situation. And then um, he said, oh, I will send two teachers, they will discuss with you how to proceed. And then he sent um, De Kyung, she is now the head of the NKT, and Kunsang from Spain, she is something quite uh, in the NKT leadership also. And they came to our center, and at that time, of course, Kelsang Gatsu was still the Buddha for me. They came to our center, and then I spread the letter, which was signed by Kelsang Gatsu himself. And that letter dated something like this. De Chen is no longer the teacher of the Dipankara Center in Berlin because she is stealing my center. He is stealing 
my students and what she is doing is very negative it was a very aggressive and negative letter at least i felt it like this and they spread this letter among us and i read it and said to them oh no this is not from geshela geshela is a buddha he would never write something like this because this is untrue you know i was so naive they said no he wrote i said forget it he never he didn't write it and they were a bit, what to say, um, powerless because they could not convince us that she is so bad. I said, take this rubbish with you. This is not from Geshela, I said. So, and then at one point, it was even, it got more funny over time. It was also, it were, of course, there was a lot of tension. They actually tried to expel us from our own center and asked the police to kick us out. And then we turned it, we said, we are the residents of the center, please kick out them. No? So, and then at one point, this Dekyung and Kunsan were in the room and they pleaded lying on the ground please give me the list of all the people from your center the email is not they wanted to write them email to invite them for a kadamba teaching about the reliance on the guru i said no i don't give you this list why should i give it this is our center we run the newsletter we do it and she was completely desperate and to get this email list and then she was laying on the ground with the mobile phone in her hand and said geshela is here geshela is here i said I know he is here. He's a Buddha. He's always with us. And she said, no, he is really here. Kunzang said, he is really here. I said, no, I know, I know. And then I didn't understand what they are talking. He was in Berlin. After I understood he will come to our place, I said, oh, great. Now he will fix everything. So and then he came and everybody, quite, quite a lot of people were excited. I said, no, if the Buddha comes, can there be any problem? All problems will be fixed. So I was completely relaxed and happy. The Buddha is coming. He will fix everything. All the misunderstandings will be solved. So, so as they say in American English, you had drank the Kool-Aid. Yes. Um, we had then the meeting with Geshela, and he was there in the meditation room, the so-called Gompa. And then there were all those, uh, his assistant and all his, what do you say, uh, a company or what do you say, his uh, entourage. And uh, how do you call it? Entourage? Entourage. Entourage. Entourage, entourage from um, England. He said, so there are now a lot of problems. And I tell you what the cause of all of these problems is. And then I turned my head to a fellow monk and said, you know, now he will tell what the cause of all these problems is. Our delusions. This is what the Buddha taught. This is what he teaches. And this is what I expect from a master. And then he said, I have not done anything wrong. You, he showed to his entourage, you have not done anything wrong. And then he looked on us, all these people from Berlin, and you also, you have not done anything wrong. The person who is guilty for all of this problem is the Chen. And now I tell you what happens with the Chen, because she created all those problems. She is no teacher anymore in the Enkati. Her monastic woes are broken and lost. Her bodhisattva woes are broken and lost. Her tantric woes are broken and lost. She is no nun, no teacher. She cannot carry the name Kelsang Di Chen I gave to her. She cannot teach my books. She is free. Now, from the setting of Enkati, having broken all three types of woes means you go to hell. And at the end, people were so confused, they started to cry, you cannot imagine. At the end, after some, some weeks, I said, actually what he did, it was a spiritual execution. 
And I was completely ashamed that I didn't stand up and said, what a type of shit and rubbish are you telling? This was my personality before I entered Enkati. I stood up against injustice, but I was paralyzed by fear and guilt. This is what the Enkati made out of me. So, and then gradually I revised the events and I understood he is not teaching dependent arising. He blames a single person as the cause of all problems. And this means he has no clue about the core of Buddhism. He does not practice it. He is no Buddha, no Buddhist teacher. And this was so clean, clear that I knew I have to leave him. If you read uh, certain types of public letters he wrote, you will find this pattern. I am innocent. I have not done anything wrong. And the sole cause of all this problem is either the Dalai Lama or a certain Enkati teacher, or it's always outside. It's never him. He has never done anything wrong. Even at the Enkati main page for a while, there was, uh, what is, there was a link to their blog where they tried to uh, refute to certain types of allegations. Um, and they called it wrong allegations against the innocent. This is very much in his mind. If you re experience this real life, your virtual reality is um, confronted with another reality. And then you, it's the question is how you deal with it. And for me, it was an awakening. And so it, I was quite happy at the end. <laughs> so did you leave the NKT immediately after that or did it take you some time? No, it, it rather went very quickly because shortly afterwards, we were extremely confused. And we were so ex uh, confused about all of this that the Chen suggested we go now to Italy to, Italy to meet Lama Ganshin and to ask him for advice. And there was a teacher, Geshe Lopsang something, and he said, Kelsang Kerzo is not a good teacher. And you should understand this and you should leave him now. And uh, Kelsang Kerzo said, my best friend is Kundaling this fake Kundaling, and Kundaling said about Kelsang Kerzo, I, I called by telephone with this fake Kundaling, he said, Kelsang Kerzo is like Adolf Hitler. You know, they speak like this about each other. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so I got to learn also this side. And then for two and a half years, I followed these Shukken Lamas. Uh, the turning point with those Shukken Lamas was, there was one quite uh, good Lama, his name is Dagom Rinpoche, and he gave me novice ordination in 2002. So at one point, I realized that my Enkati teacher, De Chen, she has a real narcissistic uh, personality disorder. I think similar to, uh, to Gelsang Getsu because the Enkati makes you even more narcissistic than you were previously. You started off by talking about your own narcissism. Mm. And when you told us that story about uh, Kelsang Gyatso, I mean, anybody who is unable to take any responsibility for their actions or always projects all responsibility onto others sounds like another classic facet of narcissism. Yes. So, I mean, if, if, if uh, Gyatso is, is absorbed within that himself, it, it makes sense that he would create a culture of narcissism amongst yes. his followers. Exactly. People who follow Enkati don't have negative experience, they have good experience. Um, because you wouldn't follow the, something which is not good for you. No? The Enkati is really good and give you good feelings. But quite interesting point is you learn within the Enkati to uh, loosen the boundaries of your own narcissism. You know, narcissism is mainly self-focused. Uh, self, self Self-obsession. Self-obsessed. Now, with the Enkati, this self-obsessed narcissism transforms into a group narcissism. So you can let go the self-obsession with yourself by projecting it onto the group. So you develop a greater amount of com compassion towards those within the so-called Kelsang family. So you have an improvement. 
by letting go a certain type of selfishness and by developing a certain type of compassion towards those members of the group. It sometimes it extends also to your parents. But this, uh, this self-obsessed narcissism transforms into a group narcissism where you identify you with a higher, pure group, with a higher, pure teacher, which then adores yourself. I am part of this amazing, pure tradition. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a type of a transformation, but it's extremely limited. And then at the end, you are caught up in this self-circling group narcissism, which usually you cannot really understand or get out of it because it's a self-circling system. You don't read other books usually and all those things, and then you can never get out of it until you are met or confronted with this type of reality, like I met or other types of reality, which... Um, which forces you to reconsider where you are. And I think that mirrors my own experience in dealing with NKT followers. As you described, they will not accept the ambiguity or plurality of possibilities. It's just yeah. one. Yeah. It's just their reality and that's all that exists, which is a classic uh, feature of cultish groups. This is probably a good point to start talking about your websites because in a sense, you know, I feel that uh, good information and uh, clear information is one of the uh, tools that can help people weaken that uh, identification with that false reality that you were describing. And it seems to me from, from looking at your work that your work is in a sense performing that function or at least it could if some of these NKT followers or, or other members of uh, cultish Buddhist groups went there and read some of it. So if I can just briefly say uh, you've got a few sites. The two I know about best are info-buddhism.com uh, which is your, which is a very nice, well-presented, professional-looking website. And the second one that I'm also very familiar with is buddhism-controversy-blog.com which is more of a blog approach where you get people writing as well, often about their experiences with these groups, but in particular the NKT. Now, which of those two websites came first? Was it the blog or the infobuddhism.com? Info buddhism.com. Um, um, mm. Okay. So did you start writing those soon after you left the NKT or was that something you'd been thinking about doing for some time anyway? It uh, happened a while after. Uh, having left Enkati and a while after I left all those Shukun Lamas based on other experiences. Because after all of this, six and a half years with those um, highly manipulative systems and Lamas I met and this type of a self-manipulation or self-brainwashing um, yeah, self or whatever, however you want to call self -deception. it. Self-deception. Self-deception is the right term. I had to go through a process of, a, I call it reboot. I had completely to restart everything. I had to challenge everything, myself, my way of thinking, whatever I learned. And this took me four years. And those four years were extremely hard process. My good luck was I had tremendous help at this time. I cannot tell so much help from so many different angles. And I needed it all. I used all of it. After four years, I said uh, that my process of healing was somewhat like um, accomplished. Um, in the third year or so, there was a certain type of a, um, incident or occasion where a friend who um, was a part of this... Um, cult, but not deeply involved, was in a mode of justifying and whitewashing the experience and what happened. And he was so enthusiastic about seeing it in a positive manner, which is a type, again, of self-delusion, which he needed to have a good feeling about it. And then there was one person who didn't say anything, but who suffered a lot from this cultish experience. And then after he finished, 
He said, no, it was not like this. It was so painful. And he said three sentences, but those three sentences, they came so deeply from his deep pain and suffering that this person who usually didn't shut his mouth, he is a person who, is, um, who thinks a lot and who speaks a lot, but usually he is not a person who is silent. It was so impressive. He was so touched, so moved by the suffering. He couldn't say any word anymore. And he was silent for an extremely long time. He didn't say anything. I brought him to the train station. I think it was 30 or 30 minutes. He was completely silent. And then I said, so goodbye. I was also silent because I, I enjoyed it. And then he said, if even one person could be protected from experiencing this pain, how fortunate would this be? And then he said, goodbye. And I was left alone with this idea. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking, oh, I know how it functions. I know how it works. If I don't speak up, whoever is going to do it. In one night, I set up a German website. It is called Buddhistische Sekten.de, something like Buddhist cults, where I started to write down without mentioning any group until today. There's not any group mentioned to explain the principles of how cults function. So, and this was my first website. Yeah, this was the first thing, and I felt quite happy about it. I did it in three days, three days, three nights. You know, I studied uh, computer science. I worked in this field. I'm somewhat like a nerd, you could say. <laughs> so three days, three nights, I had a new website with content, and people started to enjoy it. Over time, I improved it. So, and then there came one point where Wikipedia came up. And then I checked if there is an entry about Enkati. There came up an entry about Enkati and they started to spread all of their propaganda. New Kadamba tradition is the old Kadamba school. They completely distorted the things again. I said, no, it's not like this. And then I started to become an editor at Wikipedia and tried to correct their distortions at Wikipedia. And I put a lot of work in it. And finally, we had quite some good articles And I also, it was not, it was not always good or I wrote, but Wikipedia functional, you are corrected. And this was the time where I started to consult also academic literature to understand the neutral, neutral point of view and all of those things. I learned a lot from Wikipedia. And then Inkati again and again tried to kick me out of Wikipedia. You know, they even popped up in the German Wikipedia explaining that I'm traumatized. I should not be a Wikipedia editor. In the English Wikipedia, they said, someone said, you know, you should not wonder if someone opens your door and punches you in your face or something like this. So they tried to revert all those changes. And then I had the idea, you know, if I do all of this work and they can easily delete it again, This is completely waste of my time. So I had the idea I should collect those good writings on another website. And then I had no idea. I also didn't have time. What type of website? So I asked a friend of mine if he helps me. I put this article there. I put that article there. Then I needed a more complex menu system. And my, and my friend couldn't help me anymore in this way. And then I started to get more into this. The next German website came up. And then I had the idea to do it also with the English. And then in 2008, this was also an important point, the NKT flooded Wikipedia and deleted a lot of passages with third-party academic research to turn Wikipedia into their point of view. And I was somewhat like the only person who tried to resist their trials to manipulate Wikipedia. And at the end, I gave up because I didn't receive enough support. And then I stepped down from Wikipedia and I, some people support me on Wikipedia, but they were not persistent enough not to counter those. You know, there were some people who had 
10, 12 accounts. This is called Socket Puppetry or something like this. And so I was not able to withstand it. This happened in April 2008. You can still read all of this. I also have some article in my, on my blog about it. And I had the idea... I must inform people outside of Wikipedia. And this was then the fourth step. I started this blog, which you mentioned. Uh, at that time, it started 2008 as a means to balance the strong propaganda of NKT worldwide in all of the net. You know, they were so present. Yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode on Buddhist cults. That's, that's what I see too, a lot of whitewashing. It's interesting as well, when you go to Amazon and you see any of the books by uh, Keo San Gyatso, uh, it's quite disgusting. You see, I don't know how many reviews written by his followers just praising him as you as you did, as the third Buddha <laughs> and pure information. And so I have to confess to writing quite a few reviews of books I have read of his uh, in which I try and balance out <laughs> the opinions a bit more fairly, just to make people aware that it's not true. As you described it, it's rightly understood to be propaganda. Yeah. yeah. I think another thing you do, which I particularly like on the infobuddhism.com, is that you do bring in academics. And I think if people are confused, as you, as you were at one point, about the NKT, you know, they don't need to get in, involved in the politics and the arguments between the Shukdan groups. They can actually just go and read some opinions by academics, right, who are, let's be honest, um, the best experts we can find currently. And uh, one thing I liked, uh, there's one person, again, whose name I'm probably going to mispronounce. He's French, I think. Is it Thierry Dodin? Uh, Thierry Dodin. Thierry Todin, yeah. I'm a big fan of Thierry. I think his, his work's great. I think out of all the articles out there which talk about the Shubton debacle, his is one of the most sober and most uh, informative. Yes, yes. So I also saw that you requested at least one of these academics to respond to some of the common misconceptions about Shubton for your website. Is that correct? Oh, there are now. Uh, Thierry Todin is really a fine scientist who is something like the counterpoison of NKT. Counterpoison is in, in the sense of NKT is black and white. And he is a, he is a really good scientist who appreciates the nuances, but also who knows the nuances, who is never satisfied with any black and white image of anything, who has an extremely wide knowledge. And this is, that's why it's, he is, uh, whatever he says is so helpful. Because he differentiates things, he has the, he knows the facts, he has the knowledge. He also admits where he doesn't have the knowledge and so on. So and that's why it is so helpful. And then there's another person, Terry Dodin is not much used by media. He was interviewed by BBC and uh, he's quite well connected. He organized a lot of conferences, but in a way, academically seen, Robert Barnett uh, from Columbia University is more established and is more often quoted. So I had the idea also to ask Robert Barnett. And so I made also an interview with Robert Barnett. And recently he was um, asked by the Observer or the Guardian when they reinvested or investigated one of their articles, also again as an expert. And I asked him if he could uh, provide for the website um, the email he sent to the editor because it was far longer and more informative than what was published by the Observer and Guardian. So he agreed. So actually there are quite a lot of things on my website and actually almost all relevant research is now on my website. 
And two days ago, I received permission from uh, George Dreyfus also to offer a new, uh, another article from 2011, which is not well known about the concept of evil in Tibetan Buddhism. It's really brilliant and nice. I hope I can put it online today or tomorrow. So I, I have some interviews with experts who knows the, who know the subject, no? and this also unfolded over time. And also it was based on they saw the need to do it. And they also saw somewhat the quality of the website in a way and uh, had some faith because it was not too easy in the beginning to find some support. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. And by the way, I have to say some another good thing about Terry Dodin. On my website are six articles from the book you know, about uh, projections and perceptions of Westerners about Tibet. And this is quite unique to have a published book. It was published in German and in English, I guess also in other languages. And the English website has six articles from this book. The German website has five articles from this book. Terry Dodin was crucial in helping me to get a, um, permission from the authors, the publishers, and all those people who were involved in the copyrights. Great. Can you give us the name again of that book? It is called Imagining Tibet, Perceptions, Projections and Fantasies. A Tibetologist said to me this was a legendary conference held in Bonn where all known Tibetologists worldwide were invited to discuss Tibet and the perception of Tibet. It was something like a breakthrough about all of those projections, positive and negative projections. The brother of the Dalai Lama called it something like uh, we say it in German, Bilder, uh, Bildersturm, Iconoklassen. Yeah, Iconoclastic. Yeah, Iconoclastic. Exactly. There we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it cut through all of those things, you know, even the positive projections. But also, because the Tibetan government in exile, they also use a lot of propaganda and misperceptions and all of this, and it cut through all of this, no? I mean, that's a theme that also runs through the work of Donald S. Lopez and also Sam Van Schaik in their books on Tibet. I mean, they, they cover the Western imagination and its tendency to romanticize Tibet as this sort of forgotten, mysterious, perfect land of peace. So it's good to see that there's more, you know, more work being done to dispel those myths. Yes, yes. That makes me think of a question again, you being a monk within the Tibetan Buddhism. How, how do you manage that? What, what's your view of Tibet? Maybe we can go some step back before I answer this question. This Wikipedia thing forced me to have better arguments. And this was a start to use academic texts. And while reading it, I realized, oh, I have a lot of wrong understanding and misunderstanding. And I used all those experts. I'm a real admirer of academic research. I'm really admirer of professors and their knowledge. No? And it helped me a lot to be more realistic. And this is what Buddhism is all about. All of this academic literature helped me a lot to be more realistic, to have a more human perspective on Tibetans, to have a more compassionate perspective, to have a more realistic view. So in a way, this is for me in no way contradictory to my monk's life and to my Western life, because this helps me on my way. This is also what the Dalai Lama says. He says, you know, the tools of science and the tools of Buddhism, they have one aim, to be more closer to reality in a way. Not that it might have different tools. And in that way, I really enjoy it and I use it for my own path. And so I hope my image of Tibet and Tibetans is more realistic, but I wouldn't say it's realistic. I think it's more realistic than previously. But my feelings towards Tibetans are more based on gratitude. I'm extremely grateful to Tibetans because all what is precious to me 
comes from Tibetan Buddhism. Now I started recently more to go into Theravada and I'm also appreciated, but I have a really deep feelings of gratitude towards Tibetans and I love them because I love what I got from them. Their culture, uh, their way of living, um, which helped me to get access to this vastness and richness and profundity. Do you think though that there are perhaps some uh, Tibetan teachers that take advantage of the sort of romanticization that some Westerners carry on? Do you think this is possibly something that Gyatso has done or, or maybe others? Might be true. The Tibetan teachers, they have certain stages of, um, and sometimes they might not even have any realization. Some might have certain types of experience, some might have some realization. So there are certain levels or certain types of qualities which might be there. Lesser qualities a teacher has and the more he deludes himself, the more opportunities there are that there are other cults like the NKT. You know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, I have to say, neither my NKT teacher, the Chen, nor Kelsan Ketsu, I think, start from evil intention to deceive anybody or to manipulate anybody. And this is just reality. And I, one time I asked Ringo Tungu, he said, of course, there are good teachers, there are medium quality teachers, and there are bad teachers. Just moving on to the second site, uh, you mentioned, I mentioned, sorry, BuddhismControversyBlog.com. You seem to, it seems to include a number of articles written by yourself, uh, which are sometimes a response to some of the propaganda or the issues going on with the NKT. It must be mentioned to those people interested. Uh, there's also articles about Rigpa and about other Buddhist groups. Possibly one of the most interesting contributions there is there's quite a lot of uh, testimonies and contributions by other people, because I wouldn't want listeners to think that there's just you doing this work. I mean, in a sense, you've been a voice or you've been willing to stand up and be counted as someone who will actually speak the truth to an experience that many, many people have had. There are a number of authors writing personal testimonies, and there are a number of other websites out there. I think, again, you, you, you seem to be able to gather some articulate voices speaking further to some of the distorted perceptions, propaganda, and cultish behavior within the NKT. Anyway, that's a great website, so I think people should check that out if they want further opinions. One thing that's coming up from this discussion is the importance of history, Tenzin. I think if we think about Tibet and we think about fantasy and we think about the imagination, one of the ways we counteract that is by having a realistic understanding and a more complete understanding of the real Tibet and Tibetan history. Would you, yeah, would you agree with that? Yes, yes, I completely agree. I completely agree. I, the funny point is I was never interested in history. This was part of my naivety. No, I grew up in East Germany and my marks in history and geology were really bad. <laughs> of course, you know, in East Germany, you were, what to say, brainwashed with this type of communist reading of history. No, you were, I didn't have a good uh, history teacher either. And I completely ignored this important topic. And my own suffering opened me to appreciate and understand the value of history and research. And for me, actually, it is spirituality to read history books. Why? Because spirituality means you work with your mind poisons. And one of the mind poisons is ignorance. And if you have ignorance, you get things wrongly. And then you project based on ignorance. Aversion comes up, easily attachment comes up. And understanding things is counter a poison, or what to say, is a counter force against ignorance and against the mind poison. That's why for me, this is all spiritual. It's not political, it's not scientific, it's uh, spiritual for me. Okay, Tenzin, so there are two good books that uh, I've read, which I think listeners should consider uh, reading to find out more about history. The first one is called Prisoners of Shangri-La, and it's by Donald S. Lopez Jr., 
The second is Tibet, a history by Sam Van Schaik. Uh, again, apologies if I mispronounced that surname. Can you recommend any other books that we could add to the list? Um, yes, there is The Sounds of Two Hands Clapping, The Education of a Tibetan Buddhist Monk by George Trefus. I found also particularly helpful the book by John Powers, Introduction into Tibetan Buddhism, which has some really uh, a nice presentation about the history, also about the different Dalai Lamas. I found it very useful. And there is also a brief book by him. This is called History as Propaganda. I only read parts of it. I didn't read it in full. But it cuts through the propaganda spread by China as well by the uh, Tibetans in exile. And I found this is also quite useful. Personally, I received a lot of information by discussing with certain types of academics, scientists and journalists who are well informed in email exchanges. So I got something like a private lessons, you could say. <laughs> Lucky you. Yes. And I guess that some of that, a good, a good amount of that information has come through in your writing at your websites anyway. Yeah, they prevented me really from making things worse and writing wrong things. No, I really had to correct myself a lot of time because I really had uh, no clue at all. And I still see myself not an expert, but I'm on the way to at least be more informed. Great, great. Tenzin, uh, it's been uh, great having a chat with you today and I've really appreciated your time. I uh, hope listeners will uh, enjoy this as I did. I recommend thoroughly that uh, all of those, especially following Tibetan Buddhism, check out Tenzin's work at infobuddhism.com and his blog, BuddhismControversyBlog.com. Uh, there's plenty to read, much to look at, and a lot of it's very high quality. So uh, thank you, Tenzin. Thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how things develop. Our next podcast episode will actually specifically be looking at the academic world of Buddhist studies with an emphasis on history and uh, social critique. So I think our, the end of this discussion feeds nicely into that. Check us out next time on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Bye for now.